and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I am Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, I don't want to fish. I want a podcast. <laughs> I, this is going to be an interesting episode, everyone. Strap yourselves in. Yeah. Cam, we have quite the film for our listeners this week. A film so hot it could <laughs> ignite thousands of sacred candles. It has more undercover work than the John Le Carre adaptation. It has more O's than 007, and it puts the hard in Spy Hard. <laughs> Cam, what are we talking about? Yeah, we're here this week to talk about Johnny English. <laughs> <laughs> I kid, I kid. We are, here... <laughs> yeah, we are here this week to talk about 1995's Bad Company, not to be confused with 2002's Bad Company with Chris Rock and Anthony Hopkins. We'll talk about uh, that one later. This one features Lawrence Fishburne and Ellen Barkin. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting film. We have a lot to uh, unpack. So let's, <laughs> undress. Get under the sh- <laughs> undress. let's get under the sheets before we undress. Um, I have everyone's letterbox.com synopsis. And I suggest you do get comfy in bed because this is perhaps the longest, and I'm using the term longest (laughs) appropriately for this film. It's the longest synopsis I have ever seen. Really? Really? That's interesting. Okay. Bad company. Bribery. Blackmail. Murder. Specialities of the house. Nelson Crowe is a CIA operative under the thumb of the company for a disputed delivery of $50,000 in gold. They blackmail him into working for the Grimes organization, which is set up as a private company for hire to blackmail prominent individuals. Crow, working with Margaret Wells, another former covert operative, blackmails and bribes a state Supreme Court judge, but the deal sours. One of Crow's co-workers, Todd Stapp, discovers Crow's current CIA involvement in a plot to overthrow Grimes and blackmails him to be cut in on the deal. More blackmail occurs as Wells manipulates Crow to kill Grimes. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> then, are you okay everyone? Should I keep going? I'll keep going. Then, the CIA uses that discovery to blackmail Wells into killing Crow. Who can you trust? That's And that was on Letterboxd? That's letterbox for you. That's interesting because I'm looking at the IMDb one, and I think it's the exact same. Yeah, it is. So that one on IMDb was written by Tad Diburn. So, Tad, come on, learn to narrow these down. And that is the only synopsis on IMDb, so clearly Tad went around and entered this text, or someone took Tad's text and copied and pasted it into letterbox. But usually, you have users submitting multiple synopses, not in this case. Well, I, th- I think going forward, this needs to be a, a phrase that we remember. So this synopsis is a total tad. D- is it Diburn? Yeah, Diburn. 
So whenever we have another one like this, it's a total tad to burn. Or a bad company, whatever you want to call it. Sure, either way, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Tad Dibburn. You've at least uh, enshrined yourself in Spy Hard's history with that tremendously large synopsis. Cam, I've never seen this film, obviously, <laughs> but you, you've got a dirty mind. So uh, have you ever caught it before? No, I had never seen this before. Um, it falls right. Like, this is 1995. This is, I think, the specific year where I start really making an active effort to... Hit on puberty. <laughs> an, <laughs> an active effort to, like, watch as many movies as I can of a given year. 96 was the big one where I just, like, watched everything from 96. But, like, 95 is where it starts. So it actually kind of surprises me I didn't catch up with this movie. But also, like, it was... Its impact was small, shall we say. <laughs> 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 you've heard that one before haven't you <laughs> thanks scott <laughs> it's gonna be like this the whole time guys um no well, i did a little bit of research on the film so i have an idea as to why that is yeah but maybe that that's let's dive into it a little bit more you know this is uh, we're making jokes about it being a sexy film it's not really in the synopsis but this is a very sexual film and, and Cam, you and I are both very comfortable in our sexuality, so we can talk about this sort of stuff. But this film gets very hot and steamy, and I will, I will dive into that as we get into the review. But yeah, this feels like a film to me that would have made somewhat of an impact, but it it feels completely forgotten online. Yeah, and I think there's a specific reason. We'll talk about kind of the atmosphere under which this movie was released when we when I you know give my thoughts on it because this is a this is 1995 the movie in a lot of ways in terms of like the trends of the time so I think it kind of falls comfortably within at least one subgenre I can think of that was very popular at the time and uh this one has a lot of the tropes and the fact that it wasn't necessarily the hit that some of the other ones were is probably why it was kind of invisible whereas when you watch it now you're kind of like a little bit shocked honestly and you think yeah. how did people not talk like crazy about this movie but there was a lot of things kind of like this in this specific point in time it's i mean to me it feels entirely unique it's not something i've experienced before from a 90s film right. I, i've seen a lot of smutty like sex uh, 60s 60s that works the the 60s 60s are back again yeah but nothing with the sort of 90s level of like production value and seeing like Lawrence Fishburne who is the lead actor in this film getting up to all kinds of business <laughs> I, I i i just feel like it would be the sort of thing that like even you know even those film critics online or like film fans who like to find obscure films and sort of talk about them online be like hey look at this film i found yeah i'd never and even if you search this on twitter no one's talking about this film it's it's disappeared off the face of the earth fairly quiet on letterboxd as well um you go back to the time, even like Roger Ebert was like a big fan of this movie, but by and large, most critics didn't really embrace it. So it just, I guess it hasn't had that sort of um, reappraisal or even rediscovery. I watched it on Disney Plus, so it's easily accessible, uh, at least in North America. So anyone can track it down. It's out there. I guess it's just waiting for that audience to stumble across it. But I guess we'll determine in a few minutes whether that audience should be discovering it. But yes. No, I, I think now is, is the best time. So Cam, why don't you take us into how this company got so bad? <laughs> so this was a Disney production. 
keep that in mind. This was, you know, done through Noted. <laughs> this was done through Touchstone, which is the Disney shingle for releasing more, you know, adult fare. But again, this is coming out of the mouse house. You know, if you're making a movie this edgy, maybe Disney's not the world's greatest place to make it, as we'll kind of discover in a little bit. Um, but in terms of the production, it doesn't seem like they were interfering that much. It's more in terms of when it came to actually releasing the movie. But we'll get to that, as I said, in a second. So this comes from a original screenplay, the first original screenplay, by um, a novelist, um, Ross Thomas, who was known um, back in the day for writing a lot of suspense and political thrillers. And um, his he operated primarily through the mid-60s into the mid-90s. And only one of his novels was ever adapted into a movie. It's his first you know, film credit. He didn't write on the movie, but his novel, The Procaine Chronicles, gotta love those um, espionage titles, um, <laughs> was adapted into a 1976 Charles Bronson movie called St. Ives. They decided not to keep the name The Procaine Chronicles, <laughs> which makes sense to me. It, it, it's not really a, a very catchy title. Sorry, uh, sorry, Ross Thomas. No. And from there, he like he wrote a lot of TV um, he wrote the movie Hammett for uh, Vim Benders in 1982. Vim Benders, very, you know, acclaimed art house director. Um, but yeah, Hammett was sort of a fictional autobiography of Dashiell Hammett, the um, hard-boiled crime noir writer. And it was played kind of a little more, you know, fast and loose, kind of more of a um, caper movie starring Frederick Forrest. But other than that, like, you know, Ross Thomas mostly stuck to to his you know writing for like books and short stories because he uh only had a story credit on the 1993 film blood in blood out which i never saw but i remember there was at least a subsect of people that were really into that movie and then he just rolled right into bad company and like bad company was his last major film so yeah kind of interesting but when you know you look at bad company which is very much about politics, corruption, espionage. Mm. Sounds like it fits very comfortably into his wheelhouse. Yeah, looking at what he's produced, it seems exactly his sort of fair. But I don't know, this, this felt like it had a bit of a budget to it. A Charles Bronson film, I wouldn't have thought had a big budget to it. No, I don't think it would have had the biggest of budgets. Probably, Although th even this movie is probably modestly budgeted. It's just like a mid-budget studio film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, thing, the sort of things you don't get anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The budget I found, and it like numbers were very shaky, uh, was $15 million. That's the only number I could find as an approximation. So, yeah, that's not like a big budget movie for this time. It's not... Neither star at this point are like commanding huge paydays. Respectable paydays, but not huge paydays. Well, like, I, I'd never heard of Ellen Barkin until this film. Interesting. Yeah. Never, never experienced her, and she has top billing. For me, I know Lawrence Fishburne, of course. He, he by the time the Matrix rolled around, that, that I mean, that was injected into my veins as a thirteen-year-old. But yeah, I, I didn't, I don't really recognize many people from this. I, I kind of know Frank Langella. I kind of know David Ogden Steers, and I of course know Daniel Hugh Kelly, um, who we'll we'll touch on later on. But yeah. Ellen Barkin was completely new, and she is the top-billed star in this film. Yeah, like, she was a pretty big deal at this point. Uh, she'd done movies like Diner, Adventures of Buckaroo, Bonsai, um, 
and just had like a real streak of like leading parts but this is towards the period where like her career gets maybe a little quieter um i was watching a, a interview with her uh, promoting this movie and she was like hyping her next project which was wild bill uh the western with jeff bridges and i'm like uh-oh pull up pull up ellen barkin this one's not gonna go well for you it was what uh, happened with old wild bill it was just very poorly reviewed and made no money whatsoever ah. so it's like oh that didn't go so well but she still works she was in oceans 13 as matt damon's love interest in that film um she does a lot of tv she's around for sure but she was always someone who i liken her a little bit to in this era, sort of like a Dennis Quaid. Everyone knew who Dennis Quaid was. Sorry, he, Ellen. <laughs> but he was not a superstar. Like, Dennis Quaid was not Harrison Ford or Tom sure. Cruise, right? Yeah. But, like, he was yeah. a reliable lead you would see in a lot of movies. And everyone would go, oh, of course, yeah, Dennis Quaid, sure. Ellen Barkin was kind of the same deal. Ellen Barkin was not Julia Roberts or Demi Moore but she was someone who would have leading roles a lot in kind of that 80s, 90s period. A, a steady hand, but ne not necessarily the uh, it girl. Yeah, never quite cracked through as like an audience favorite. And actually, Kurt Russell was in that kind of position for quite a long time as well, where he would play leads in a lot of things and a lot of movies that did not do particularly great. And then now people go, beloved actor Kurt Russell. But, you know. Okay. Well, I'm glad she's still working. I'm glad that yeah, you know her. I'm sure loads of listeners know exactly who she is. Just it, it's typical me. No idea. But go on. Well, it's funny because like I had a similar thought as I was watching the movie where I'm like, Ellen Barkin, like what was she doing around this time that I would have seen her in? I'd seen Sea of Love, sort of an erotic thriller she did with Al Pacino. Of course she did. Of course. Yeah. That one was like a kind of a big hit. So like uh, I was looking up like what else was around this era? And then I went through and it's like, oh, my God. I saw her in so many things, so many okay. things. All so, right. yeah, yeah, she was prominent for sure. And uh, not so prominent, the director of this movie, Damien Harris, who was a uh, London born, started out, you know, in shorts in the mid 80s, and then um, got his breakthrough writing and directing sort of a sexy comedy drama called The Rachel Papers in 1989. I looked this one up, I'd never heard of it, but it's. As I said, sort of like a sex comedy, but I think a little more of a dramatic edge to it. Um, it has uh, Jonathan Price as a co-star in the movie, uh, but it's more of a teen film. And uh, he also um, directed the 1991 Goldie Hawn thriller Deceived, which I've never seen, but I do remember seeing the video box around. And that led pretty much into Bad Company. But like after Bad Company, he really didn't do that much of that's particularly notable like a lot of tv work um he did a fat boy slim video for the song star 69 he uh wrote and directed a couple john malkovich movies 2008's garden of the night uh, which also starred gillian jacobs and then 2017's the wild wedding co-starring glenn close and patrick stewart but like these are not movies i've heard of so i don't know damien uh harris like this was in many ways kind of his big shot you know working for disney like a big studio production and mm. it just did not lead to bigger things which i think will probably end up tying into reception and box office and stuff like that because i think there's a lot of good things to say about this film which we will certainly get to but yeah looking at his imdb it really does not seem to have done much else at all i mean i'm, I'm I, i've never heard of this wild wedding film that's got patrick stewart in it and you'd think i would have yeah because it's only from a few years ago 
yeah. I'm guessing it must have played like maybe some film fests, not gotten any traction whatsoever, and then wound up on streaming or something. I mean, Patrick Stewart is wearing a wig in this film, <laughs> so uh, that that that's worth a look at least. Yeah, well, spinoff podcast, <laughs> Wild Wedding. <laughs> we can do it, John Malkovich. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, but yeah, I, I, all of what you're saying is tracking for me right now, seeing as I have no idea about this film or the writer or its director. Yeah. Or its lead. <laughs> and the original title for this movie was Toolshed, which makes a lot of sense when you watch the movie. But I don't know that that title did a great job in drawing in at least one actor. And let's talk a little bit about the casting. So um, Lawrence Fishburne, apparently Disney and Damien Harris wanted him badly. Like that was who they wanted as the lead. The role was not written to have an African-American lead, but they right away were like, we want Lawrence Fishburne as the lead of this movie. This was right when he was coming off a real hot streak. He'd had an Oscar nomination for What's Love Got to Do With It, playing Ike Turner. Um, he'd also done Boys in the Hood. So like Lawrence Fishburne was a real big deal. And he was up for a couple other roles at this point in time. Lawrence Fishburne, he went with Bad Company, but he turned down Pulp Fiction playing the uh, Julius role that went to Samuel Jackson. Oh, no. He also turned down Die Hard 3, um, playing the Samuel L. Jackson role. Samuel's just sweeping up all these roles. Mm-hmm. Worked out pretty damn good for Samuel L. Jackson, for sure. Well, uh, I mean, looking at this particular point in time, then, sort of, I mean, they both did fine. I don't mm -hmm. feel bad for either of them. No. But... Before those two films, and we're talking about Samuel Jackson here, so before Die Hard Three and before uh, Pulp Fiction, was was Samuel Jackson quite well known? No, he was sort of a utility player. You would see pop up like in some prominent roles, you know, Jurassic Park, obviously. Oh yeah, sure. But he would yeah. show up in like um, you know, Spike Lee used him in several movies. Uh, Jungle Fever, most notably, he's great in that. He would pop up in Goodfellas. Um, Samuel Jackson was just like one of those guys you would see pop up all over the place. He was a lead in that, um, was it National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1 opposite um, Emilio Estevez. That was kind of a spoof of Lethal Weapon movies. So like he was a name that was percolating. He was in um, Amos and Andrew with, or I think that was what it was called. Amos and Andy? Maybe whatever. It, no, Amos and Andrew. That's what it was with um, Nicolas Cage. Um, but he was not quite he hadn't quite broken through as a superstar and that happens with pulp fiction so, so lawrence fishburne sort of had a slightly higher star at this point because he oscar nomination stuff like that yes yes lawrence fishburne is like entered kind of stardom whereas samuel jackson is kind of crawling slowly towards it after working in the business for quite a long time okay so uh, a, a bit of a maybe bad choice for lawrence yeah i mean it all worked out fine in the end. He did The Matrix. People love Lawrence Fishburne. But yeah, uh, if you look at it within the just honing in on 1995 for Lawrence Fishburne, maybe not the greatest choice. He did say later, though, because he was asked about turning down Pulp Fiction, and he said he really didn't like, I guess, reading the screenplay about uh, how he felt it glamorized heroin use. And that was an instant no for him. So that's his at least reasoning for it. So And also... I mean, Tarantino is not really Tarantino at that point, so you kind of don't know. Yeah, Reservoir Dogs had been made, but it's not like Tarantino is approaching him after his, you know, third or fourth film. It's still kind of like, is this a project I want to do? Eh, maybe not. 
That's fair. And and that's a, you know, the guy's got a moral line. That's his line. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I referenced that the title Toolshed kind of could put some people off. Uh, That was Mm -hmm. the case with Ellen Barkin. She was given the script for Toolshed and she said, didn't even bother reading it. She just saw the title and was like, eh, eh, whatever. And so it kind of sat there. And they kept kind of like coming to her and her agent was like, you really need to read that tool shed. And she kept going like, it's a Disney movie called tool shed. Like what kind of wacky hijinks is going on involving a tool shed in a Disney movie. But what got her to really um, dive into it was Lawrence Fishburne's casting. She said that as soon as she found out he'd been cast as the lead, she signed on because she wanted to work with him. So that was what got her across the line on that one. I mean, I don't really have any love for the title Toolshed or the title Bad Company. Which one's better, do you think? Well, you got to look at like what... Neither is, is selling the plot. No. One's a, a, an element from the film. The other one is, well, nothing to do with it whatsoever. Um, I guess the best one is probably Bad Company because at least it makes you look at the poster and go, are they... Who's the bad one? Yeah, like maybe you'll ask a question, whereas Toolshed, you'll just think, I, I don't know, is uh, you know, Tim the Toolman Taylor gonna pop out in this one or something? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you still got you still got COVID there, Cam. <laughs> oh yeah, so I think Bad Company is the better title because it does have a real film noir, or I guess neo noir kind of vibe to it so i guess bad company sounds like a pretty good neo-noir title but i don't know Hmm. if you market tool shed to an audience i think they're like as you said is this like some sort of like home improvement film or is this tied to some sort of like construction or something bad company maybe a little too vague maybe that's the issue and and nowadays the title bad company is associated with the battlefield video game franchise so whenever i thought of bad company i immediately go to that so it's you couldn't you couldn't remake it with the title bad company now i don't think yeah and the fact that like we are going to be tackling two movies called bad company uh, on this are podcast they tied together at all no not at all they just both have the same title and there's also a movie from the 70s that was kind of a not a major major movie but it's a known movie also called bad company so it's kind of an often used title um i don't know I, I guess I, I can't say it worked for the movie because I'll just say, as we said, the movie had a budget of $15 million. Um, domestically, it did 3.7. That's not sexy. No. And to be fair, um, from what it's very hard to find, like, really concrete behind the scenes on this movie. So from the kind of the... Um, questionable sources you get the sense that like disney was a little nervous about this movie in the interview with um, ellen barkin she said disney was very supportive through the course of production and also you know they didn't want any cuts made to the movie there was no issues and um in terms of like censorship that was you know going through the censored board that wasn't a big deal so she said it was actually a pretty easy process in that regard and it wasn't like disney was nervous but when it came to releasing the movie um, I looked this up, and I normally don't look up theater counts or anything like that for uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, but this movie was released on January 20th, which is classic January dump month, when that's when studios release movies they have no faith in whatsoever. 
Um, and it opened in 302 theaters. So in this era, a studio movie would open in probably 2,000, 3,000 theaters. Well, okay. So I, I can see that they obviously have a lot of faith in it because that's a very small number of the options when it comes to theaters. Although this film is rated R, I believe. Yep. So it it doesn't have the mass appeal of a of a Disney animation. They would open an R-rated movie in 3,000 theaters, for sure. Okay, all right, fine. That's common. That's, yeah, that's a wide release. Sure. The other question would be, if you're an actor, like say you're Ellen Barkin, and you get the notification from your agent that this film is being released on January 20th. Yeah. Do you know your film has sunk at that point? Yes, you know. Wow. That's pretty, that's pretty crushing for an actor. Yeah, I feel kind of bad for because I, I was... This interview I was mentioning, it was like a Charlie Rose interview, and uh, ugh, ugh, Charlie Rose, he's long gone now. But uh, there was uh, a lot of allegations against Charlie Rose, Scott. Uh, he's a, you know, you may not know who he is, but he was like an American TV personality interviewer. Um, but yeah, so like I watched this interview with her, and like it was a 20 minute interview. It was not like a, uh, you know, five minute late night thing where she's just tossing off some answers. It was a fairly in depth interview. And I'm just thinking, like, this woman doing this press tour, knowing this movie is opening in, like, 300 theaters in January. Like, she knew she was basically marketing something that was dead, you know, dead on its feet. Okay. That's, that, I mean, that is tough. They are actors. They are meant to act. That makes total sense. But that is quite tough to be like, no one's going to see this. Or this interview. Yeah. Yeah. So, the movie uh, for the worldwide box office for the year, I don't think it got an international release at the time. Uh, not with that box office. No. So it uh, landed at number 163 uh, for the year of 1995 between Born to be Wild, a movie I had totally forgotten about. I never saw it, but it was a kid in a gorilla movie where they go on like the road together. I remember commercials now. It flashed back <laughs> to me when I saw this listed. And it was one spot above New Jersey Drive, which I'd never heard of. It was a movie Spike Lee exec produced. It was a drama about black teenagers who steal a cop car. That one I never heard of. So, yeah. Well, it, it's in good company with bad company. <laughs> beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Top three for this year. Number one was Toy Story. Number two was Apollo 13. And number three was Batman Forever. Uh, I think three movies everyone remembers. And number six was Goldeneye. So, uh, yeah, 95 was actually a pretty big box office year. And a couple final notes. The writer, uh, Ross Thomas, died uh, December 18th of 1995. So basically 11 months after this movie came out um, of lung cancer at the age of 69. And, um, you know, as I said up front, none of his stuff had really been adapted very much other than that Charles Bronson film. Mm -hmm. But in uh, 2019, uh, the USA Network did make a 10-episode series based on his novel Briar Patch. And that uh, TV show starred Rosario Dawson. I have never heard of it, but it ran for its entire run on USA Network for, you know, 2019 to 2020. I, I have no connective tissue to that, but I do have connective tissue with this film and the Briar Patch for, uh, for Star Trek fans, <laughs> which we will get into. <laughs> nice. Quite, quite, the, uh, quite the small little reference that we'll talk about it at the end. But Cam, much as our listeners know this, we're not in the market for geniuses here on spy hards and clearly we aren't although you are a self-proclaimed genius of course 
It's true, but we are very lucky that the audience also is, isn't in the market for geniuses when they look to us for entertainment. We yeah. are the bottom of the barrel when it comes to podcasting, of course, but we, we welcome you all to the bottom of the barrel with us. Thank you for joining us. Um, but let's talk about the film itself. Bad Company. I guess none of us have like a deep personal connection to the film, the director, the writer, or the actors particularly. So I'm genuinely curious from you, Cam, what on earth did you think of this film? So I said this was like 1995, the movie, and it really is like the style. You know, when you look at like Helen Barkin's haircut, you look at Lawrence Fishburne's suits, like this is 1995 in a nutshell, but also in terms of like the trends of movies. And I was referring earlier to like the subgenre this fits firmly in. That is like the erotic thriller subgenre, which kicks off with Fatal Attraction in the late 80s. But in 1992, you have Basic Instinct. And that movie is a huge, huge hit. It would not shock me if at some point uh, Disney had the name Sharon Stone circled with a question mark for this movie. It feels like within that particular time era, it seems highly likely. And this movie, it's a neo-noir. It is sort of a, um, I guess, corporate espionage kind of film. It has a lot of CIA stuff yeah, going yeah. on as well. Um, but there is heavy erotic thriller elements and also the kind of the, uh, pursuit of <laughs> often hilariously stylized sex scenes and like campy erotic scenarios. Like it feels like that post basic instinct effect is just all over this one. So this was not a movie that I thought was particularly great, but it was sort of like a trashy entertainment that I found myself consistently amused by. And I think, like, Ellen Barkin is really good in this movie. Like, mm -hmm. really good. There's a scene we'll talk about later that I thought she was, like, just hitting a home run. But, like, Lawrence Fishburne is a great lead for this movie as well. Um, in terms of if you're going to have two kind of movie star, you know, figures at the heart of this kind of story, they do a lot to ground this very kind of trashy, lurid material it has like a fun supporting cast. I found the plotting of this movie frequently very, very confusing. <laughs> Intensely confusing. Well, it, the fact that you say that, it charts perfectly with the length of the synopsis at the start. E even old Tad Dibburn couldn't quite get this in like a paragraph. So, yeah. I, I think a lot of people struggle with the, the, the plotting of this. There was a point probably about half an hour in or something where I was like, should I be like pausing this and reading like a plot synopsis? Because I feel like I'm just lost in this movie. But it was notable to me when I read like Ebert's very glowing review. And he said, oh, you know, the plot's secondary. Like what he loved was the look, the style, mm -hmm. the, the cool charisma of the leads and the way they played off each other. It has that kind of film noir kind of glamour to it. So I think it's like a movie that for me worked in terms of kind of the style of it just kind of the appealing performances but it has a lot of problems we talked recently about bram stoker's dracula on the patreon a movie that in terms of plotting characterizations kind of all over the place kind of messy but there's a lot of interesting things to talk about with that one i felt not quite as uh maybe giving towards bad company and bad, you know, and Bram Stoker's Dracula. That one is obviously visually astonishing, but in terms of like style over substance, they both kind of work for me in that w regard. This one just obviously a little less. So, I mean, people often 
mention the names Francis Ford Coppola and Damien Harris in the same sentence. So yes, I, I completely understand the symmetry there. But they're both like these 90s star vehicles with like heavy sexuality. They do actually, and they are very much based on mood and style over, uh, you know, like really rock solid writing. No, 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 you're not wrong. I'm just teasing, really. But yeah, yeah. I read that review from Roger Ebert after I watched it the first time, and I, I managed two viewings of this. And I, the first time around, I had a really rough time watching this film, I have to say. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, it, 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 it didn't invite me in. It was very cold, very clinical. I'm not too up to speed with film noir. Like, I haven't really watched much apart from our little divergences into film noir. And this is, you know, from one of the reading I've done afterwards, you even call it neo-noir. Like, it is meant to be very ambi- ambiguous. Like, you know, there's all these anti-heroes and you're not quite sure who anyone stands for or stands with. And it's dark and it's gritty. It isn't very warm. It's a very cold film. But I, I can see why people would sort of applaud its sets and its costumes and like the way it's shot is very interesting. But I, I am completely with you in, in it just being a muddle to get through. <laughs> yeah, like it doesn't hook you with sort of the storytelling. And there's a lot of like film noirs. It's kind of classic, honestly, for film noirs to be intensely confusing. Uh, that's not really outside the realm of uh, regularity when it comes to these movies. So typically, though, I find they have a... The ones that really work still kind of pull you into the intrigue. And I don't think this one really ever pulled me into the intrigue. I was more watching on a very superficial level of appreciating just, you know, beautiful people in beautiful 1995 clothing, in beautiful locations talking very chilly to one another and having a lot of like kind of cool lines they could trade like a lot of kind of like acidic barbs that sort of thing there's actually a a review i want to just read out as a capsule review from my you know i've got my still got my old 2007 dvd and video guide by mick martin and marcia porter that i used to live for like this book was my guide and i would buy them every year here's their review and i kind of understand what they're saying they said they're referring to the two actors they say she's slinky and cool He's all self-contained swagger. And this is eye candy and attitude from beginning to end. It's like, yeah. Yeah? yeah. They, seem, they seem quite happy with it, to be fair. They gave it three out of five stars. So, right. Okay. Yeah. There's like things to enjoy to look at, but it's not a home run. Yeah. It's all style. And if you can get on board with kind of the style and just hanging out in this world, there's entertainment value to be had. But... We're not looking at like the second coming of double indemnity or something like that. No. And I, I, I like I when I was doing my second viewing today before recording, like there's a scene where sort of the three leads, Ellen Barkin and Lawrence Fishburne are the agents of this shadowy organization that I'm pretty sure is basically Spectre, by the way. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah, and we'll come back to that in a second. But they're with the the owner, the blowfeld of the film. Frank Langella, who plays Vic Grimes, the Grimes organization. And he's Vic Grimes is fly fishing yeah. in, in a pond. And they're just all sort of... And this is something... I, 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 my other half, my wife, I should say, doesn't like a lot of the TV shows I watch. It's like Game of Thrones, for instance, because she feels like everyone's pontificating. Everything's like a staged performance. Like she's watching Shakespeare and everyone's like, acting. 
Yeah. And that scene felt like three people just saying the lines in cool ways to each other, but no one was talking. Yeah. No one was actually saying words. Um, and th- that really struck me on the second viewing. And there was loads of moments of that throughout the film where people are like, as you say, gorgeously dressed sets are fantastic. Some of the apartments and like the, the, the Grimes organization's building is a villain's lair. 100%. <laughs> All great to look at. But that like the scenes where they're just, they're just saying the lies to each other. And it's not an indictment on their acting. I think Lawrence Fishburne is a fantastic actor in this film. And Ellen Barkin is too. But there's no humanity to any of it. That's kind of common, though, for, like, film noir, where it's all about clever dialogue. A lot of, like, kind of sensual come-ons and, like, double entendres and just, like, ways of expressing information in the coolest way possible. That's always kind of the vibe. It's because, like, film noir is so much modeled on old detective novels it's kind of it kind of sprung from that where you know when you're watching like Maltese Falcon or anything like that or reading those types of stories the characters don't really talk like real life it's all very stylized but uh so like I feel like that's just being carried into this movie as well it's just it's more I guess the the question of like does it work for you because when you watch like a great example of film noir um it does because it's like you buy into the world they're selling, but mm-hmm. if it's if it's jarring against you, it's a sign that maybe the world isn't working as well. Well, I like. I think a lot of this film, and it's actually I broke it down into two halves. I think the first half of this film is actually quite a triumph when they're doing a lot of setup. Yeah, it's the payoff on the back end where everyone's double crossing, triple crossing, quadruple crossing, and you're just like your your head is <laughs> is on a swivel trying to keep up with everything. It's like a tennis game. It's back and forth. And that's where I my enjoyment went down in both viewings. I Do I like the world they're in? No, I wouldn't want to live there, but it's quite cool to watch these people live and inhabit the world. But what they do within it, it just baffles me at every turn. And I, I genuinely have trouble, on even on the second viewing, really keeping track of what everyone wanted to do. And I think an element of like film noir when it works is there's kind of like a a little bit of like a lurid crime or something they're involved in. Something that kind of is a little tantalizing or makes the audience kind of be like, ooh, I want to know more about what they're up to. I think here, this whole thing about this corruption of a judge and having him vote against, you know, or, or for a company who has caused um, like pollution to infect like the water supply that's, you know, hurt children in, you know, a foreign country. Like, I don't know that that's a kind of like lurid crime. People are like, tell me more. Like, oh, like this is kind of like taking a walk on the wild side. It's kind of just like gross and unpleasant. And it makes sense within what, you know, the writer I talked about. His whole thing is about like writing these kind of political thrillers and things that kind of mm-hmm. delve into corruption. So like, I think it fits very well in that. But I do think in terms of like kind of pulling you into that world, I don't know that the sort of the hook of the main you know, crime or the cause that our characters are all wrapped up in is that interesting. I don't know that I was ever that interested in it. Well, the the corporate espionage side of it is all very boring. Yeah. Like that that side of like the court case that causes the Supreme Court judge to, to kill himself is all very boring. Like it's it's the machinations. That that's that's the, the chess game itself that they're playing. What you want to see is what the individual characters are doing within that world. That's where the interesting part of the film is. But seeing how the court case ends up and the, the sort of machinations of who takes over the organization and there's lots of you know, usurping of power, it doesn't do anything for me. And yeah, I, I know what you mean. Though. People 
I, I mean, I haven't watched many film noirs. I don't specifically know what you mean, but I know what you're getting at. Like, murder isn't cool. We can all agree that. But watching it in film sometimes can be cool. Like, seeing this dark world of, like, cops and robbers and they, inhib- and they, they sort of inhabit this world is quite cool. And so, yeah, the, the, the bad deed that this company is doing is, is poisoning children. So you're not rooting for these guys. These are these guys are, are, are jags, and the spies that they're hiring, the ex-CIA spies, are all also not very nice people. And the CIA aren't very nice either. There's actually only one good guy in this entire film. Yeah, the well, the mistress, I suppose. Yeah, she is, and and ultimately the good guys win in this film because spoilers by the end, I think everyone's dead. Yeah, well, I mean, like, and even the mistress is a little bit tainted because she's having an affair with a married man. That's the whole kind of rule of, like, film noir is that there's no heroes. Everyone is corrupted in some way. It's just that, like, maybe the least corrupted person is the one that makes it out. And I did like the way that they introduced that mistress character very nonchalantly. And then she's the ultimate fly in the ointment over the course Mm -hmm. of the story. I thought that was really smart. But, like, I tend to find with, like, the film noirs I'm really into... It's like, say, like they're plotting a murder and they want to frame someone or something. So they're kind of going through the machinations of developing the plot. And you're kind of like, oh, how are they going to pull this off? Like, this is really interesting. You're finding about the, the participants involved. And sometimes they're really interesting as well. Whereas here, like, buying off a judge to vote against, you know, or to vote, you know, um, for a company and against kind of, you know, justice, essentially... It's a little too pat. Like, in the individuals involved, the only one we really know about um, is the judge, who's just kind of a sad sack character, you know, played by David Og- uh, Ogden Stiers, who I think is good. Like, he brings something to that part, but it's kind of a blah character. And then there's also, like, the company, you know, president, who's just kind of a, <laughs> a real sad sack, who's just, like, flopping around his suite all the time. Yeah, if we still had the Uramov Award in service, it would be going to the owner of that business. When they pick him up off the floor at like the end of the movie, I was howling. It's it's when um, Lawrence Fishman works and just like kicks him. Yeah, see if he's still moving. It's like ah, give him a little kick. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, okay, well let's. I don't know if I really explicitly said I liked this film or not, and that's the thing. I don't know. Yeah, like I can't seem to come down either way on this film. I don't. I don't heavily dislike it. I, I think there's a lot of cool stuff in here. But it, it also held me at a distance that I've not experienced before, which made me feel uncomfortable. But maybe that's the point of film noir. Yeah, I would say so. To me, this one is interesting in that, like, my guess is if you were to watch this in 1995, you would probably be quite dismissive. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it would have necessarily stood out from the pack. But now there is more of a fondness for these types of movies because we don't make them anymore. Sure. And so sometimes I'll go back and watch mediocre examples of, you know, erotic thrillers or these kind of like neo-noirs or the types of movies they were making in the 90s, these kind of mid-budget, adult-oriented studio films. And you find them kind of nostalgic to watch now, even the ones that necessarily aren't great. Like I'll sit and watch even like, um, you know, I have a Clint Eastwood you know, career pack, basically. It's like 30 movies or something like that. And I'll go back and watch some of his lesser crime films like True Crime or Blood Work. They're not that great, but they're kind of comforting to watch because they don't make movies like this anymore. And that's kind of how I feel with this one. But if I were to hold this up against like the high water examples of the genre, this one's not measuring up. 
No, that's fair. The, the, this, I mean, this entire film will never be made now. It, it's impossible. It, there's too much. I mean, maybe a TV version would be made. Yeah, like HBO. Yeah, you might get close to this, but that would be it. I will give this movie a lot of credit, though, in that this is an erotic thriller coming out in 1995 with an interracial. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I hesitate to say love story, but an erotic connection between you know the two leads, and there's not many examples of those from this era. So that's maybe part of the reason this one should be acknowledged as, in some ways, a little bit important. Maybe not quality wise, but in terms of at least making some strides that other films in the era weren't, and also not patting themselves on the back for it. No, no, yeah. like, it's just normal. It's fine, and it is. Yeah. Well, let's look at some things we did like. We've mentioned quite a few, but I mean, I'll, I'll lead us off with, I, I think, a lot of credit for keeping me going through these two hours goes directly to Lawrence and Ellen. They give star performances in this film with not a lot to work with, and they somehow manage to Im- imbue the characters with quirks that I don't think are really on the page. Yeah. And so... At least I remember like funny bits of uh, like how Lawrence Fishburne moved across a room, or like the sheer amount of necklaces that Ellen Barkin's character has throughout <laughs> the film. And I kept track. I have a number for you. It it's a lot. Uh, yeah, these are little stylistic choices, of course. But I I like that they raised the level of the material. They really, really did, and like. You would think you were looking at like Barbara Stanwyck and Frederick Murray, like they're looking at the material in the, with the same amount of seriousness and being like, "Let's deliver on this," even though it's not really there. And the, the these movies are like so horny, right? From the nineties, like it's crazy. Like moment one, these two are just eyeing each other like pieces of meat. Yeah, it's crazy. And even like shortly after, Lawrence Fishburne is just walking down a hallway behind, you know, like a secretary or something, and just like eyeing this woman like just like crazy it's like these two people you have to buy immediately that they just have this carnal attraction to one another Mm -hmm. that's going to fuel the rest of the movie they pull it off pretty damn good you buy it and um there's so many movies where we've talked about on the show or you just go with your you know you see on a weekend or something in a theater where you go boy those leads had zero chemistry whatsoever and like these two have chemistry and there's like an intensity to it that I think they both really commit. And they could, you know, they could feel silly shooting this movie. You'd think like you're pretty vulnerable in a lot of ways. Ellen Barkin in particular has, there's like a sex scene um, by the water that <laughs> is uh, kind of like in that era. If you were marketing like an erotic thriller, you would be highlighting like, oh, there's this one scene. Whether it's the basic instinct interrogation scene or... um. I remember even when they were putting out the Demi Moore Scarlet Letter, they were really promoting the sex scene between her and Gary Oldman in the movie. And that was like a big part of the marketing. And I think like that scene by the water would have been the marketing point for this movie. But like both actors, they commit big time, big time. I mean, the scene I think you're referring to, uh, it's a very, very explicit. I mean, you actually see quite a lot of Alan Barkin. Yeah. To be fair. And I I'm surprised that that wasn't more of the water cooler thing about this film. Like at least there's a bit of skin. Uh which you you get quite a bit. Not that the film should hang its hat on it, but 
it's a credit to the two lead actors because, I mean, you and I have rolled around a few times, Cam, and we just giggle like schoolgirls. So <laughs> I don't know how they did it. They're consummate professionals, of course. And it's like Ellen Barkin, in some ways, could have been playing a caricature because kind of like the icy blonde character. I mean, there's been a whole Hollywood history of those, yeah. you know, Hitchcock movies and film noir and all that sort of stuff. But like... The scene that really jumped out to me, because consistently she's just like magnetic when she walks into a into a scene. But like there's the moment where they gun down, um, you know, Grimes, the Frank Langella character and her reaction through his entire death when she's looking at him and like, you know, she's like crying when she's when he's standing there in disbelief. And then he's holding the gun to her head and pulling the trigger that's clicking over and over. And the entire way that whole scene plays out, I'm like, Ellen Barkin is swinging for the fences. This performance is so intense. There's so much internally going on with this character that like, this is someone who gets kind of a um, very light homework assignment and goes well and above the Call of Duty. Well, you will always say uh, going for broke. Like that, these performances, and especially Ellen Barkin, but like even following on from her seeing the guy die and like, you know, he said he loved me and she's crying and then Lawrence Fishburne just coolly is like, oh, I love you too. Mm. Yeah, and just like like just touches her her chin, and he's like, "Oh, that's so icy." Yeah, but the, it it it's hard to like critique this film for its story. I mean, oh, it's very easy in a sense, but like, I love their performances. I just don't like a lot of stuff going on around them. Like yeah. just the plot that they're dealing with is what brings it down for me. But those two, any scene they're in is electric. All the nonsense they're spouting. I mentioned all the scenes of them just talking words at each other. <laughs> I, it, but somehow you are drawn into the film. You're like, actually, yeah, I, I want to hear more about this, this tool shed. Uh, what sort of size tools you got in there, Lawrence? Uh, tell me more. <laughs> and the way these two very toxic people are just like locked in this embrace together. Because like he has a line towards the end of the movie where he says like, you and I are forever. And he like throws her down on a bed or whatever. And it's just like the intensity of these two people who ultimately end up gunning each other down. Um, yeah, is like they are locked together till the end and they're plotting throughout, you know, she wants to overthrow Frank Langella's, you know, head of the company and have the two of them take over. Um, it has that like kind of classic noir setup, but I think the two of them are really good. Like I would have loved to have seen them in a, you know, similar type of movie with maybe, you know, a better script or maybe like a, a stronger director. Like I think they could have been in something really special. Yeah, I actually I hadn't considered that, but now you say it, I'm I would like to have seen what this film had could have been with someone stronger at the helm. Yeah, like could have maybe guided it into maybe or maybe stripped some of the fat away from the story and made it just felt a little bit more like straight and narrow. Yeah, but that's not what a lot of spy plots rely on. But I, I mean, just yeah, credit to those two. But did you have any things you want to sort of call out for likes, Cam? I think for me, like the atmosphere of the movie like because we talked about some of the interiors like Lawrence Fishburne's apartment looks amazing these people are all like former CIA or former intelligence people that are now operating for like the shady corporation called Toolshed but they all live in like the most beautiful amazing apartments ever which you would think you would kind of want to be a little bit off the grid like a little but they all have like the most showy apartments humanly possible <laughs> yeah and like uh, Lawrence Fishburne's kitchen looks exactly like the kitchen from Frasier yeah. Um, yeah. With that weird like island thing they got going on. So there's a lot of money. It's a very 90s design. A lot of money in ornate furniture they've got going on. Lawrence Fishburne has a home gym. 
Like, and they make comments about the home gym in the film. Definitely choices being made with that sort of side of things. They, I, I'll have to look up who the DP was, but I think they had a certain image in mind of what they wanted this film to look like. Yeah, the cinematography was by Jack N. Green, um, who had worked on movies like uh, Unforgiven for Eastwood, Bridges of Madison County. He was he worked on with Eastwood a few times. Beverly Hills Cop he uh, worked on as well. But um, often more in like the camera electrical departments. But cinematography, he did do a lot of things. Most recently, I guess his last big thing would have been probably maybe Hot Tub Time Machine would be the one people would know most recently. But he also did like 40-Year-Old Virgin. So, yeah. yeah. Fine. Yeah, I definitely didn't understand what Roger Ebert found to enjoy in that side of things. And it, it, again, along with those performances, it's something else that keeps you going throughout the film. Because you're constantly trying to figure out what they've got going on in the background. Mm-hmm. And the movie is set in Seattle, um, and it kind of carries that vibe, although it was all shot in Vancouver, and we're three hours... I was going to ask you about this. Yeah, yeah, we're three hours away from Seattle, so in terms of, like, the climate and all that, they look pretty similar, like, they fake it as well as they can, I think. Um, I was looking for, like, major locations that, you know, Scott, when you come to Vancouver, I could showcase the sights and sounds (laughs) of Bad Company. The Bad Company's tour, yeah. It's pretty tough. It's a lot of buildings, uh, interiors where you're looking out maybe over the water. So I could definitely mm-hmm. point out, you know, our bridges and things like that. There's a part where, um, because um, we find out Lawrence Fishburne is still working with the CIA to take down, you know, Toolshed, where he's out on the streets walking around to meet up with the CIA. And then they're driving together. And it's like certain streets I recognized and things like that. But like the architecture's changed since 1995 so it wasn't like big iconic vancouver locations well there's the uh the owner of the corporate entity uh spalding gray's character walter curl yeah uh he has like a very high high rise apartment that overlooks most of the city is that a landmark that he's in do you know where that is at least i don't know i don't know it's just like one of the it would be one of the richer areas of vancouver i would guess in one of the luxury apartments which is not somewhere you'll be found. Definitely not. Never. Never. No. <laughs> please help the can. Yeah, please, please. Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I would just like to I mean, we did mention it, but I the the depiction of sexuality in this film was surprisingly tasteful. It's often hilarious in some ways. Yeah. Like it's yeah. often like really over the top, like the scene where Ellen Barkin early in the movie shows up at Lawrence Fishburne's place in like a bathrobe in the middle of the night and just like poses on the bed. I definitely was laughing at that. It just had that total nineties erotic thriller vibe, but you're right. Like there's an interesting element to this in that there are a couple very graphic sex scenes, Mm -hmm. but like no one's ever really naked. Like there's some nudity in the movie, but they all kind of keep like their, clothes on to a certain degree it's mm-hmm. interesting because that's not necessarily the case for most movies like this no it's all more suggestive nudity or suggesting things are going on downstairs and the camera is held above it while people are moving around uh, maybe that's a choice from the actors and their agents they all worked that out but it could have been silly sure it, the, I, I wasn't laughing at the sex scenes I was like oh well this is loud Sure, because I I I I watched this the first time quite late last night, and uh, I mean, there's a scene where Ellen Barkin is very much enjoying her time with Lawrence Fishburne, <laughs> and uh, that that was loud, and I got kids living next door, so I was like, oh, gotta gotta turn that down, gotta turn that down. 
Lawrence Fishburne has a look on his face at one point too that I was like, that's a screen cap. We have to screen cap that. <laughs> You'll have to send it to me, or maybe I'll make okay. a gif out of it. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's very telling. He was clearly uh, the character was enjoying their time there as well. Um, you know, like that's something we've talked about in the past with movies, like the ones that like really commit. This movie is really committed mm-hmm. to what it's doing. Um, that's kind of why, like. I can look at it and say, like, writing-wise, it's you know, it's not one of the best things we've ever covered on this show by a long shot. No. But I kind of enjoyed kind of the trashy appeal of it, and I mostly enjoyed watching it. Yeah, it, it definitely feels very 90s. Oh, yeah, big time. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? The Enforcer and Muscle Beach Party episodes are live, and tune in in December. It's going to be plenty of festive fun as we celebrate the holidays Spy Heart style. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true Spy Heart today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhearts. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. The other thing I liked that I wanted to mention and we've spoken about the shootout a little bit, is the ending. I mean, I like that the only closest to good person kind of wins in the end. But like, I did not expect those twists and turns in Lawrence Fishburne's character's apartment at the end. I did not expect for Gia Kareed's uh, character, Julie Ames, to turn up. Uh, I, I knew she was going to get revenge, but also for, you know, Ellen Barkin to turn up as well and it's just this massive shootout of insanity and you get this graphic shot of Lawrence Fishburne receiving a headshot that's a shot in itself as well that's a beautifully staged shot it looks great uh but like I didn't and it's in slow motion as well which the film doesn't really use until that point Uh, yeah I didn't expect it at all it just went crazy all of a sudden and I like that you know, that character, um, Julie Ames, shows up there to kill whoever was responsible for, you know, the judge committing suicide over, mm-hmm. you know, this bribe that he had accepted from them. I like that everyone has receipts in this movie. Receipts are like a really big deal. Um, but she shows up with a gun and it's the whole Chekhov's gun. Like she's going to show up and shoot someone, right? But ultimately she's kind of like... She's a catalyst to the finale, but she doesn't kill anyone. She, she misses closes, all of her shots. Yeah, she closes her eyes and just fires like wildly. Um, and it's ultimately like Lawrence Fishburne and um, and Ellen Barkin that shoot each other down. And I, I like hmm. that, that, you know, everyone's active in that role. But ultimately, like one character is um, <laughs> not quite up to the task of playing cold hearted assassin. No, uh, and I also like the fact that she turns during the sort of standoff, as it were, because she's originally going there 
she Julie Ames, uh, the sort of mistress of the county judge, uh, turns up to shoot Lawrence Fishburne's Nelson Crow. But in the process of having found out that Ellen Barkin's Margaret Wells is also there, finds out that she is Lawrence Fishburne's boss and that she ordered him to make the kill or no, to uh, to basically put in the order of events that caused the judge to kill himself. And so she turns the gun on Ellen Barkin. Yeah. And so there's like a sense of justice. And you're like, oh, well, okay, maybe Lawrence Fishburne, who I guess is our protagonist, will get out of this. He doesn't, and everyone gets shot apart from Julie Ames. I mean, most of that entire main cast by the end are dead. Yeah, I I still don't know what happened to to Todd Stapp. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's that character ties into my dislikes. So, <laughs> well, let let's let's head over there. Let's mosey on over to dislikes, Cam. Yeah, take us away. Okay, so like Todd Stapp, the character played by Michael Beach you know, is introduced as like a colleague working for Toolshed, who I like the way they involve that character in, because the CIA is heavily involved in the way that that character kind of talks his way into the CIA. Um, There's a lot of very homophobic stuff in this movie, intensely oh so, mm-hmm. where it's really coming from, I guess, kind of just like the one character, really, the CIA guy, yeah, who's like... um throwing like let's just say it f slurs like crazy at yeah. uh at the um michael beach character who's you know out uh, openly gay in the movie um it's crazy uh mm-hmm. but like it, that's so that's an odd choice but also like they set up this character as being very involved in like the power struggle like it's someone who's not necessarily plotting with ellen barkin and lawrence fishburne but is like i'm open to this like i'd like the power and the prestige of knocking off langella and taking third man position in this team and yet like that character has no resolution whatsoever he just disappears entirely from the movie well in the imdb trivia which is i mean it it does have a a a source but i'm not gonna dig into it and this is maybe not particularly true apparently the subplot of the todd Stapp character was deleted mostly from the final cut uh which basically went into why he was decommissioned and and thrown out of the CIA due to his homosexuality. Sure. And he's meant to have this sort of built-in like dislike of the CIA and wanted to get back of them. But they never even explain, even this bit of information doesn't really explain what happened to him at the end. Like, does he inherit the Grimes organization just by, like, sheer merit? Like, he's the last one? I have no idea. And, like, you know, I, I like the idea of him involving himself in the CIA back and forth. Mm-hmm. And, like, Michael Murphy shows up as the CIA handler or whatever dealing with Lawrence Fishburne. He's uncredited for some reason. Maybe because <laughs> he was like, you want me to say what in this movie? Take my name off the movie. I don't know. It's weird. Why I was Michael... wondering where he was. So he's not on the credits. No, he's uncredited in, on the movie, Michael Murphy. And he's a known character actor. He's in some, you know, uh, Woody Allen films. He was in, I believe, Batman Returns um, a couple years before this. He played the mayor. Uh, he's, like, a known character actor. So... I don't really know what the story was there, but yeah, like I liked that the Todd character was involved, but it just never amounted to anything. And that was frustrating because I thought that character jumped out, especially when he's teaming up with Lawrence Fishburne and they're like, I'm Mr. X and I'm Mr. Y like elements like that, but it just comes to nothing. No, uh, I, I mean, this film is centrally focused on its two leads. So I can understand why these sort of, 
secondary tertiary characters are, are brushed away by the end but a bit of tossed off dialogue about what happened to him at the end from the CIA guy or something like that like maybe he becomes the contact for the CIA in Toolshed just something just to go this guy is okay or he's dead but let us know either way it feels like you spend a lot of time building this character up and giving him a backstory just to be like who? So yeah, like that character, and I guess just like how he ties into kind of the muddled elements of the movie was where my dislikes really came from. Because like, that's kind of emblematic of some of the movie's storytelling problems where it's just like, it's really confusing. And that character, obviously, because he's so tied into the plot, you just notice it the most. But there's several elements like that where it's just like, okay, I guess that's just going to go by the wayside. Yeah, I and and that is my big hang-up about this film, and I mentioned it off the top, it's almost impenetrable when it comes to its story. I I mean, the, you know, the, the, the bits of how they get to it and the plot of, you know, this guy killed himself, and da, da 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 that all makes sense. But the actual moves on the chessboard and the overall story, I do not know who's working for who by the end. Because one of the big concepts, I mean, the, so Lawrence Fishburne is a CIA agent that is fired, for uh, apparently not giving a bribe to some diplomat or dignitary. He says he did. The dignitary says he didn't. But he's actually still working for them on retainer when he infiltrates this tool shed organization. Okay, double agent. We can work with that. But within that, he's also plotting to to take over the the tool shed company with Ellen Barkin's character. Okay, that's a triple cross. We get that. And then within that, he is also working with the Todd Stapp character uh, behind Ellen Barkin's back at one point to also take over the company and also not tell the CIA about it at one point, but then they do tell the CIA about it. And then later on in the film, Ellen Barkin just randomly turns on Lawrence Fishburne. And I have no idea why she turns on him. Um, is that when the CIA start, when they nab her? Yeah, so they turn up. At, they turn up at the tool shed and start threatening her to to kill Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah, but I, they had an argument before that, right? So that's when they do. That's when you do like the "I am your world" or whatever it is that, that quote you made earlier. They had already had an argument by that point where they take over the company, and I think they came in for a meeting, and he was late to the meeting. If you recall that, and by the end of this meeting, they're they're screaming at each other, and like he throws her onto the desk. So that begins like the dissolution of their relationship, but there's no foundation for that. They were literally madly in love, eating each other's faces mere moments <laughs> before. I feel like that's a pretty common trope in film noir where the couple, you know, these two people that are like erotically drawn to one another, they have some sort of crime they want to pull off. They pull it off and then they kind of turn on each other shortly after. I feel like that's kind of like a hallmark of the genre, but it's like whether it really makes sense within this movie I guess the thing that it didn't phase me too much because the Ellen Barkin character was so clearly someone with like no real loyalties to anyone um, because she was obviously also involved with Frank Langella's mm-hmm. character. She's kind of like the one who's probably the most dangerous person in the room um, and I think was more than willing to hop to whatever opportunity, you know, revealed itself. Sure. I, I just don't think the film sets that up particularly well or pays it off particularly well it for me i mean you can and i'm not blaming this on you 
But you're saying this, oh, this, it's a trope of... <laughs> don't blame it on me, Scott. It, it's a trope of the genre. It's a trope of noir. I don't care if it's a trope. Yeah. What works for your film or does not work for your film? Objectively, this did not work. Yeah. I don't care if every other film noir did it. it. They hopefully made it work better than this one. And I would have wished that in the writing stages they'd gone, actually, why has she just changed allegiances so quickly? At least give some sort of setup. I agree. Like, it's it's whether the trope is supported or not that's yeah. important, right? It's not that it just is. Um, and this one, I guess for me, more or less worked because the character seemed pretty all over the place. But I do think, like, there is also a need on this movie to end with this sort of grand, big kind of moment of violence. Yeah. And so it's, like, kind of like the tracks are wedging into place to get them to that finale that uh is it the most earned mm, it feels a little over the top given kind of the setup yeah uh i mean this is quite an outlandish film anyway some of the the concepts are, are, are pretty far-fetched but that, that's uh i mean do you have any other dislikes you want to bring up cam no i think that kind of sums it up for me it really was just like the convoluted plotting and just that like dropped threads and things like that like it was more in terms of like the storytelling never it never grabbed me yeah it was more like i was just kind of enjoying the atmosphere but when it came to actually following the plot i found the plot always kind of like a little bit blah and just didn't have that kind of that spark of inspiration you kind of hope for no i i agree and the only other one i had left over in my notes was just I, I was just kind of miffed, and I'm sure you'll just reply to me that it's a trope of the genre, Scott. So you just 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 accept it. <laughs> uh, is they all seemed a bit unemotional and quite empty at yeah. times. That I mean, I'll take that back. Ellen Barkin was having fun a couple of times, and so was Lawrence Fishburne, according to what you're telling me. But yeah, it reminded me if we're going to make a spy connection, I always go back to the Man from Uncle with Henry Cavill, who's recently signed up to be superman again good for him but in that film he honestly felt like he couldn't care about anything that was going on and all of them in this film just felt like they were just making quips at each other the entire way through which is fine and it's cool i mean look at lawrence fishburne in this film he looks suave af i've never seen lawrence fishburne look so sexy as he does in this film good <laughs> grief but that being said, I I just felt like I couldn't get behind anyone. I couldn't root for a single person in this film. What about the poor mistress? <laughs> well, even you said like she's kind of tainted. Like she, she is yeah, helping yeah. him cheat on his long-term wife, his his doting wife that you see in one shot shot upwards to make her look a bit ugly, which is a really unfortunate shot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Haircut. It, it, it's a clearly a choice to make her seem like the sort of I don't know, probably had kids and just she's she's just the one that you know not the sexy secretary or whatever. I totally get it what they're going for, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. I couldn't get behind anyone and that made me feel a little bit distant from the overall finished product. Yeah, yeah. Uh so a moment that just also popped out to me is like pretty is it a dislike? It's it's kind of a dislike because it's it's definitely icky is the like setup early on of when we see Lawrence Fishburne on the the first case. And it's like the incest thing mm. with like the uncle and the 16-year-old girl. And I'm like, okay, this is definitely like the lurid kind of thing you'd see in this type of neo-noir. But I'm like, you're definitely not getting that one across the line in uh, in 2022. And like the fact that like the 16-year-old is involved and they're giving her money, you're like, oh boy, this is gross. 
Well, I think she's pretending to be 16 for the sake of the video. But it's, it's her uncle. No, it's not her uncle. Is it not? No, I think the point... Uh, I mean, people, some people haven't seen the films. If we're going to talk about it, let's quickly set it up. The first yeah, yeah. job that Lawrence Fishburne's given once he's hired by the Grimes organization is to sort of honey trap a, a head of a, a, a corporate entity so that another person can take over the company. And so they do that by... Basically, they pay a prostitute because she says, where is the money? And it's in, it's in $50 bills in the letterbox. Where is the money? They turn up to this guy's house and find him having sex with a woman and they get a video camera out and film him and then the woman says, oh, Auntie, Auntie Jenny will be very disappointed with this or something like that in a, quite a timid voice to make it sound like that is his niece. That seems like something that would be very easy to argue against if you're that guy. It's like, I can prove to you that's not my niece. Sure, but the, the video is damning enough. But that would If you put that video out and say that, there's that, I mean, he could then clarify in the newspaper the next day but your job's gone. Sure, sure, yeah. But like, I was, but then like Ellen Barkin refers to her as being sixteen, and I was like, uh, okay, uh, I got nothing. I, 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 I thought she was an of age sex worker. I don't think so because when they're presenting the tape to um that guy's whatever boss or whatever, uh, they're like critiquing it to the guy, and he's like, perfect, perfect, and like they're saying she's sixteen. No, I just took that as he was an absolute creep. Uh. I think that's. I think they were like saying it was someone who was like underage. We can't decide, guys. If you are <laughs> well versed on this film or were paying more attention than us, let us know what you think that setup was. If you agree with me, it was a honey trap, or you agree with Cam, it was a little bit of incest. Yeah. Either way, weird, weird, just just weird. <laughs> yeah, weird. weird. Uh, I. That's when you know what movie you're signed on for, though. You're just like, oh. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Well, uh, strap yourselves in, folks. <laughs> I mean, literally moments later, Lawrence Fishburne is mountain Ellen Barkin. So, uh, yeah, it, it, yeah. It's, it's, it's a ride that uh, she hopped on board for. <laughs> but uh, in terms of like final notes, I did want to mention, I said it at the top of the start, one of the characters in this is uh, Les Goodwin's kind of like a, a an informant for Lawrence Fishburne, played by Daniel Hugh Kelly, who you probably don't recognize the name, but Star Trek fans might know him as the Baku dad, who I forget the name of, in Star Trek Insurrection. Oh my god. Okay, okay, there's your Briar Patch connection. That's the Briar... Did you not actually make that connection before? I thought you got it too. No, I didn't, but I've got a connection. Did you pick up on the X-Files connection? Oh, no, go on. That Krychek, played by you know Nicholas Lee on the X-Files, showed up in this movie... Uh, he played, um, I believe someone Ellen Barkin was talking to the part where the CIA come to talk to her. Mm. He plays Jake, the guy she's talking to who lets them in. He's out of focus, uh, but it is clearly him. <laughs> uh, 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 mine's in a major motion picture cam. You've ain't got nothing. You ain't got nothing. That's true. Um, That's true. That's true. But Crycheck, fan favorite, rat boy. There you go. Um, I mean, I've got a couple of final notes, I guess. I mean, firstly, how do you write a wanted ad for spies? Um, was that the thing that was like, was that like maybe coded in newspaper or something? I think so. I mean, the, there's actually a really famous one that the GCHQ put out here in the UK a few years ago that uh, got a lot of attention online and how like they were expanding the scope of who could be a spy. And it was it, like in, in major like newspapers here in the UK. I'll put a picture up of it online. It's actually really interesting the, the way in which they're trying to hire spies. Um, 
I don't think the people who were doing the hiring now were doing the hiring back in 1995 because uh, they seem a lot less homophobic now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Very true. There's the part where like the Spalding Gray character is on the ground, and I believe it's like Todd goes to pick him up, and he says something like, "I wrote it down. It was the most bizarre moment of like homophobia, where he says." Grown men don't touch each other. <laughs> I was like, what the hell was that? This is the same guy that was creeping over a photo of an alleged 16-year-old girl. So he's a bit eccentric. It's true. Weird line, though. Very weird line. Yeah, it, it made me bad. And also, like, don't touch me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he definitely stood out. Have you got something? There's the part where, like, um, Lawrence Fishburne is watching Ellen Barkin with Fra- uh, Frank Langella, and he's, like, teaching her fishing. And they portray it as kind of like steamy between the two. It's like fly fishing. And like he cuts down to like Ellen Barkin in her hip waders mm-hmm. or whatever in the water. And they portray it as like sexy fishing. <laughs> that <laughs> that got a big laugh out of me. I was like, oh my God, they're like trying to make hip waders look sexy. That's amazing. <laughs> and yet it somehow is sexy. <laughs> it kind of works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know what I'm going out for on Halloween this year. Yeah, no kidding. Halloween uh, 2023. Sure, sure. Um, the other thing, I, the other note I made was, at one point, Frank Langella says, the world will be over in 20 years, which would be the year 2015. <laughs> so uh, he's close. <laughs> close. Well, he says 20 to 30 years. That's what he That's actually true. says. So we could still survive till 2025, guys. So listeners, it's still great. You've got two... And a bit more years of Spy Hearts before we all implode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we finish all the 39 steps in that time? <laughs> what? Uh, uh, we'll surely find out. We've got three Johnny English films still to cover. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> what, what a way to go out, like Johnny English 2. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the last film before the world implodes. Great. Great. That's the moment the comet lands. Yeah. And actually, we should note another spy connection. Uh, Gia Carides, who played Julie Ames, played Robin Swallows in the second Austin Powers film. She absolutely did. But Cam, you asked about the the prediction about the world ending from Langella's Vic Grimes. Let's say the world ends in 2025. What are you doing with your last two years of your life? Probably trying to figure out who the next Bond will be still. (laughs) (laughs) Barbara's like scheming to the last minute. Who could it be? Who could it be? It's not Henry Cavill. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't, that's, that's like three more years. I don't know. Like as you get older, Scott, you're not quite there yet, but at a certain point you start to really realize the passage of time and how utterly terrifying it is. Mm. And I say that as, as someone who's 41. So at that point, it'll be even more amplified. So I may just be like curled up in a corner somewhere, like shivering. There's no change to a normal day out and day in there, really, Cam. Well, but like a full day versus only like segments of the day. That's just when you wake up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fetal position and whimper for a bit because it's 4 a.m. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. I, I think I will probably, uh, I don't know. Go climb a mountain and die up it or something like that. Because what else do you do at that point? Okay, I got a question for you now. Jumping off of this one. Mm. What's the last spy movie you watch? Oh, what a question. <laughs> what a question. The last spy movie. What do I go out on? What's like my exit music from the world? Do you want to go out on top or do you want to go out on House of 92nd Street? 
Uh, I I feel like I want something that's a bit weird for my final showing. I don't want like a, a smash hit, like a Goldfinger or something like that, or a Casino Royale. Condor Man or Remo Williams? Oh yeah, it's gonna be. It's good. I I've got a real love for both of those two films from doing this show. I I I literally went to a cinema the other day that has like a suggestion wall and wrote Remo Williams and then at Spyhards on it just to just to see if I can get it played because I would love to see that on the big screen along with Condor Man. So I I but if you had to put a gun to my head and choose out of those two, I think I'm going out watching Condor Man. That's fair. I think for me, I've got to stick true to me. Thunderball. Mm. Just give me those yeah. scenes of the the shark swimming through the water. I can go happily. Just. Just as the tidal wave smashes into your apartment complex, that you're watching the 10,000th minute of underwater sequences <laughs> in the film. Exactly. With that like nice soothing music, so I'm relaxed. Yeah, totally. Mm, mm, for the panic ensues. Well, before we go, Cam, I did have a final question. Is this our sexiest film so far? Other than Condor Man, yeah, I think mm. it is. Um... I know there's one on the list for us to cover that's, I think, significantly more so than this even. Um, but, uh, yeah, the spy genre tends to be maybe a little more suggestions of sex versus, like, you know, actual, like, erotic scenes like this movie. So, um, I don't... I, I think we might have a couple more on, you know, the horizon. One in particular I'm thinking of, one big time. But, yeah, I think to date, yes. I, I will probably take this over the sort of kiss dancing in Notorious. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I still find that a bit jarring. I know I know it was a haze code. I completely understand, but I still find that a weird scene. Uh, okay, that's fine. Well, it is getting a bit too hot under the collar here on Spy Arts. We need to take a cool shower <clears throat> in the knock list. Cam, yes or no, is bad company joining the good company on the knock list? No, no, it is not. It's this is like a classic late late night nineties erotic thriller. Uh this is not knocklist material, but I don't judge you if you enjoy watching this late at night. <laughs> as as the world ends. Yeah, exactly. As the world ends. Um no, I, I'm not surprised by your answer and you won't all be surprised with mine. Is it a curio? Sure. Is it weird that there's a spy film in the nineties I haven't heard of? Yes. Would I go back and watch it again? No, probably not. I, I think the actual spy plot itself is very muddled in this film and very hard to track. And we've sat through films like Funeral in Berlin that can be a nightmare to unpack. But yeah, it, it's not making the list of the best spy films in all time. I think it is one of my only experiences of one of these sort of adult films of the 90s. So I, I liked a lot of what I saw. I think if you want to see some of Lawrence Fishburne's lesser seen films. Maybe it's worth checking out if you like a cool hangout film with uh, some cool sets, maybe. But other than that, I don't think I could ever recommend Bad Company. No. And also, if you're a big fan, say, of Sea of Love and seeing Ellen Barkin in that movie, check this one out because it does feel in some ways like a, a follow up to that movie. Well, there you go, folks. Bad Company, unfortunately, is not making the knock list. The dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Cam. It's question time, and it's going straight at you. What are we doing next week? Well, Scott, it's Bond time again. So we are going to be tackling 2008's Quantum of Solace. We had a great time 
welcoming Daniel Craig in with Casino Royale. Now it's time for the follow-up. I think this is the perfect film to follow up Bad Company with because it is the shortest Bond film of all time and we are not ones to outstay our welcome cam. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> and not only will we have the Quantum of Solace review, we've also got a, a few special surprises for you over the weeks around the review. So look out for that and more will be announced in the review itself so there you go folks your mission should you choose to accept it is to watch quantum of solace from 2008 and join us next week if you like what you heard on the show please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts and do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week let me see you work that rod, Cam. <laughs> 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 <laughs>